Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast, Open a Fucking Book, in the How Did You Hear About Podco section of the application. That's podgo, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. Very Christmassy, isn't it? Yes, it was. Very... Oh, oh, wait, oh, oh, wait, oh, you got it? Ho, ho, ho. All right, there you go. I thought that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome to our Christmas series. And welcome to Open a Fucking Book. Because that should have came before Welcome to Our Christmas They know series. what they're listening to. I'm Stephanie. I'm Kevin. And, uh, <sighs> yeah, beginning of the Christmas season. I'm fine with Christmas season starting, like, now. Because it, it's December. But the whole, let's start everything mid-November before we even have Thanksgiving. That no. shit pisses me off. They started selling Christmas shit yeah, before, before Halloween. Before yeah. Halloween. Yeah, that's annoying, That's too. ridiculous. Yeah, that's annoying, too. You know, if you want to celebrate Christmas around Thanksgiving, I understand that. Because sometimes families can't go to both holidays. So they do Thanksgiving, Christmas together. Christmas shouldn't start until Santa Claus comes down the Macy's Day. The, I keep saying Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade. The Thanksgiving Day Macy's Parade. Or the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. There, there. you go. Okay. You got it right. Once Santa comes down, then, then you could say it's officially Christmas season. But before that, you still got Thanksgiving. A lot of times you still got fucking Halloween. Which, consequently enough, I'm wearing our All the Horrors shirt today. I'm not. I'm wearing my... Jane Silent Bob with... Um, my Clark's... Uh, is that uh, spaghetti? It might be spaghetti sauce. I don't know. I've been wearing this shirt for like four days. <laughs> <laughs> and now they have a peek into our life. Well, so, into mine, because... I will wear the same clothes over and over again because I I just don't change clothes that often. I know. All right. Well, let's get right into it. So, in this three-part Christmas series, I think and hope, anyway, we will be covering one of what I like to call the Big Ten. Now, there are many lists out there that try to break down the best authors of all time. Some I agree with, like the one I used to base the Big Ten on. Some I don't, like the one I saw that had Shakespeare at like 15 or some shit. Yeah, he's... Yeah. But even in that list, in every list, this man was among usually the top five, if not the top three. Now, we've already had one member of the Big Ten. Stephanie, do you know who that was? Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Very good. And can you guess where he was on the list of what, between 1 and 10? Around 7. No, nope. Number 10. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
but we aren't going in any real order. We're just jumping around. It's not like I'm starting at 10 and working my way up. But this English author was an activist, sorts, a child laborer, kind of. You'll see. A journalist, an author, a playwright, an opera writer, constantly sick individual, an avid walker, and a father of not one, not two, but ten fucking children. All from the same woman. Well, I mean, at least it wasn't different ho-ho-hos. Yeah. And almost constantly busy. Like, really fucking busy. And the amount of shit this man takes on at once for no other reason than because he can is pretty astonishing. He's ranked number two in our Big Ten, and for good reason. And if you're going to do a series Christmas time, he should definitely be the one that first jumps into your mind. Now, listeners, I give to you the story of quite possibly the greatest novel writer of all time. Shakespeare did mostly plays and poems and shit like that, so I don't really consider him a novel writer. He wasn't a novelist. But... This man is a man that thoroughly disliked America and Americans, with the exception of Boston. I I don't know. (laughs) And someone that would go on to open a home for wayward prostitutes and a lover of the theater almost as much as Bram Stoker. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the life of Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. (laughs) Dickens. <laughs> What's that? Now, our main reference for this series is the book Charles Dickens, A Life by Claire Tomlin. Now, this probably isn't going to be as much fun as Hunter S. Thompson. The book certainly wasn't. And I'm not sure anything ever really will be. But there is still some good, interesting stuff. So, let's get to it. First, let me ask, other than all the books that he wrote, what exactly do you know about Charles Dickens? Again, I don't... I mean, there are very few authors that i i know specifics about their lives right he is not one of them okay i know you know a lot about edgar Allan poe yes well that's you know he's one of those authors i became obsessed with right um dickens i loved his work but he wasn't an author i became obsessed with like i know a shit ton about rowling's life you know i watched her biography i read parts of her biographies um, I don't know about Dorinda Jones's life other than her current life. I don't know about her past. But we're still waiting for her to get back to us so we can interview her. Yeah, she's doing like media I know. tours. She's and a stuff. busy person. She's yes. not gonna take stop for for us, but maybe maybe eventually. Yes, but you know it. I love her books, but I mean, am I really gonna spend the time to research her early life, or is there? You know, with her not being, you know, at the status of J.K. Rowling and Dickens. and Seems like she's got a little bit more of a cult following. Yes, we are more of a, a cult, I guess you could say. Okay. <laughs> You're in a cult. We're called the Grunlets. Yeah. But um, it's, I'm in a cult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just started watching that The Vow on uh, Netflix last night, so... You should know all the signs by now. If you have to start wearing scarves, then you know it's time to get out. You're not getting branded. I know that. No, no, no. If I get a skull tattoo, that's kind of a brand. But that's not a brand, though. A tattoo isn't a brand. A brand is a fucking brand. There's a difference. 
there's a symbolic thing behind it. We're anyway. supposed to be talking about Dickens. Jesus okay, Christ. Okay, yes. so let's get into it. So I don't know about his life. So. Okay, well, you're going to learn. Charles John Huffam Dickens, and actually they they spelled it wrong in the paper when they uh, announced it, was born Friday, February 7th, 1812, at number 13 Mile End Terrace, Landport, the second child to John Dickens and Elizabeth Barrows Dickens. Now, uh, the house is actually still standing, despite land development and the bombings of World War II. The address has changed, however, to 393 Old Commercial Road, Portsmouth. Uh, I guess the inside kind of looks like a time capsule. You go in there and they've, they've redone it to look exactly like it did when they lived there for the very short amount of time that he lived there. I wonder if the, if that's how Rowling named Grimlog Place in uh, London. Um, because it's number 13 Grimlog Place. Oh, I don't know. That would be very interesting. I'd have to research that. Mm -hmm. Now, so as we always do, let's get to know the family so we can better know the man. Um, not much is known about John's first 20 years or so. His mother, named Elizabeth Ball, was a servant to Lady Blandforden in London at age 36 when she met and married William Dickens, a manservant at the house of John Crewe in 1781. With the marriage came a move for Elizabeth to the Crewe household. They had a son, William Jr., in 1782. And 1785, William Sr. was promoted to butler, then Dom. But apparently before he kicked it, he also hit it because Elizabeth gave birth, birth to John before the end of the year. So he was a posthumous baby. Now, there were some dirty rumors around the birth of John and whether William was actually the father. Some even said it was possible that even John Crewe himself was. There isn't really any evidence, but it's assumed that John Dickens possibly believed this, for he would spend his entire life, or what we know about it, trying to live far beyond his means with the assumption that he was entitled to what he wanted or needed without ever having to pay anyone back. Isn't that how most Americans live? Uh, well, this is in England. so hmm. Now, he would make many friends and connections, which he would then use for loans that he never intended to repay. He was very charismatic, uh, kind of not fat, but, you know, a hefty guy. They said his tongue was a little bit bigger than his mouth, so when he talked, it, it kind of came out a certain way, and people would say the same thing about Dickens as he, uh, Charles, as he gets older. Uh, but he was very charismatic, so he had a, he had a way to grab a hold of you with his words, and then kind of use you to get money, and then you'd never see him again. Yeah, I can I can see that. Now, at age twenty in 1805, he got a job at the Navy Pay Office in London for five shillings a day. Uh, probably getting the job through friends or friends of friends that he hadn't stiffed yet. It was a good job, and John was smart enough. They were in the middle of a war with the French, so it had stability for the time being. He was promoted after two years, then promoted again after a few more, and was making enough money by 1809 to get married. It was a thing back then where if you didn't have enough money, you couldn't get married. You, have to, you had to live up to a certain status before your in-laws or future in-laws would let you get married. Yeah, because I... 
it's not so much a dowry. They just, you know, you have to be able to provide a... Exactly. A and, and they don't want their daughter marrying below her class. Right. Yeah. Now, John met Thomas Barrow at the office, which he is now... Which, in the office, which he is in now, and that's where he met Elizabeth. Elizabeth's father, Charles, where he got his name, worked as chief conductor of monies in town at the Somerset House in London. Young Charles would never meet his grandfather, Charles, because he had to escape quickly from England when it was found out that he had been defrauding the Navy pay office for seven years. Nice! Way to go, Grandpa! (laughs) Now, he had... 10 children and claimed that the responsibility led him to it. When criminal proceedings started, he fled. Uh, the Barrows in whole were better educated and more cultured than the Dickens, most of them becoming high profiles in London offices, published authors, artists, reporters, etc. But they say every girl marries a man that reminds her of her father, and John Dickens had much in common with Charles Barrow trying to live beyond their means, speaking in loose, grand terms, being easy with money, dressing well, indulging in expensive books, and entertaining friends. John and Elizabeth married in June of 1809, their firstborn, a daughter named, and this is a very popular name back then, because this is like the third time we've seen it, Fanny, who would be born the next year, so 1810, with Charles coming two years later. It's said that Elizabeth was out dancing the evening before she gave birth to her son. They were, Elizabeth was apparently very boisterous, very fun person to be around when she was younger. And uh, everybody said that her and John made a really good couple. They really played off of each other well. She was not fond of the whole uh, not paying people back thing, though. Now, they had a third child in early 1814 named Alfred, who died at six months old. Uh, Later that year, John would get promoted to Somerset House and they would move to London. At this time, John was making good money. 200 pounds, far more than his parents ever made a year. But his love of extravagance left him still with little money. In April 1816, a fourth child was born, Letitia. And in 1815, the war with France was over and the Navy pay office job changed and John was sent to Kent in 1816, then to Chatham. It was around this time that Charles was learning how to read. John brought home books like The History and Antiquities of Rochester and its environs, and Elizabeth would give him daily lessons. The line from David Copperfield, quote, I faintly remember her teaching me the alphabet, and when I look upon the fat black letters on the primer, The puzzling novelty of their shapes and the easy good nature of O and S always seems to present themselves before me as they used to, is an acknowledgement to his mother's lessons. Yeah. Now, Charles remembers these times as being a delicate and sometimes lonely child. He started suffering from spasms in his side so painful that they kept him from playing games with the other kids. So, while they played... He laid in the grass and read. The pains weren't constant, so he did play some. He fell in love with performing with his sisters at friends' houses. They would sing and dance and perform comedy routines. It had become a lifelong passion, along with writing, that he would pursue for a large part of his life. The main focus of these performances was usually Fanny, though. Her musical talent was far superior to his. When he was eight, he even wrote his own 
theater tragedy named Misnar, the Sultan of India. The manuscript did not survive. Oh. Would have been nice, though, an eight-year-old uh, Charles Dickens manuscript. Yeah, I think my brother and I used to perform for my egg donor. Yeah, I, I, we used to do silly stuff, too, but it was uh, it was nothing big. Yeah, we'd but, make up plays, we'd make up songs. Yeah. And then when we'd go up to our dad's house, my stepsisters and I, we would perform songs and stuff, and we'd, dance, we'd pretend we were TLC and dance <laughs> and sing in front of mom and dad and everything. It was... I miss doing that stuff. Uh, I used to do a really good Michael Jackson impression when I was younger because I had a higher voice, so I could sound like him, and I could dance like him a little bit when I was younger and more flexible, so I used to do that type of stuff. My my brothers and sister used to try to egg me on to, to do it, and I didn't want to, but I ended up doing it anyway, and it was, it was, it was fun, and then I... You know, my voice changed and I'm not as flexible anymore. So that went out the window. Yeah, whatever. Now, the children also got to ride on the small naval yacht called the Chatham on the Thames. The sludge-colored tidal rivers haunted him all his life and became part of the fabric of his late novel. John was earning 350 pounds a year, but still in financial straits. And in the summer of 1819, borrowed 200 pounds from a man he knew in London, and he agreed to pay back 26 pounds a year. What should have taken eight years to pay back ended up taking, because of his financial incompetence, over 30. It's like fucking paying for a house. (laughs) Now, another child, Harriet, was born at this time, and Frederick came a year later. By now, John had a reputation Money was even tighter, and trips to London for the seasonal pantomimes were no more, which we learned all about pantomimes with Bram Stoker. But in 1821, one of Charles's aunts married a doctor, and they made it possible for him and Fanny to go to a proper school. The teachers and other students liked Charles. He was bright and hardworking. Once asked to recite a piece of literature he read from the humorous miscellany, all the other children applauded enough for two encores. You gotta wonder if they're just doing it or if he was really that good, because I mean he was only a kid. Now his teacher, William Giles, was a good teacher, but he did do Charles a disservice once by teaching him to take snuff, Irish blackguard. And even though he quit using it after a few years, it did give him a taste for tobacco, and he would become a serious smoker at the age of fifteen. Yeah, I've tried snuff before. I think it's that it's uh tar and tobacco or something in a little packet and then you stick it between it's not like you're putting the actual tobacco in your mouth in between your your gum and your your lip or your gum and your cheek but it's a packet type thing yeah but he was nine yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) now february of 1822 another child was born alfred lamart John had to return to London again and the family with him, but the Giles's offered to house Charles so he could continue his schooling until the end of the school year. So, at 10 years old, Charles went to live with his teacher's family while his family left for London. And by all accounts, his time here was great. The family treated him well, and he loved the area in which he stayed. The towns of Kent and Rochester would appear over and over again in several of his books. In July of 1822, the Giles's put him in a London coach with a copy of Goldsmith's The Bee, some sandwiches, his clothes, and sent him to London on a rainy summer day by himself 
still only 10. Gosh. That was a different time. He goes on and on about how, oh, it was such a horrible ride, and and uh, he felt so lonely, but he kind of whines. Well, yeah. I imagine I imagine he's 10 years old. He's on a coach all the way to London. Apparently, it was a really long trip, so he probably did get lonely, but he had the book, and, you know, he knew it. Mm. I mean, he seemed a bit mature for his age, so... But I can see him being whiny because he is a kid. He knows he's a kid and he's all alone. Uh, some adults should have ridden with him, especially back then, because you never know if somebody's going to yeah. rape or kill him. Or... Yeah. Yeah. People weren't. Ver- I mean, there was a lot of immoral people at that time kind of running the streets. And uh, there, you know, the police didn't necessarily do anything to stop it right away. Yeah. Because they didn't really care. Yes. Uh, but he. He's a, he's a very, uh, how do I want to say? He's very self. He's very conscious about his age and what he should be doing, what he shouldn't be doing. Like more than most kids, and that'll come to play here in a, a little bit. Now, later this year, two-year-old Harriet would catch smallpox and die. It's still a mystery how the rest of the family kept from catching the once devastatingly deadly disease in the smaller house that they all lived in in London. Yeah, they all lived in this itty-bitty house in London. She had smallpox. Nobody else caught it. And I don't know how. Hmm. Yeah. Now, Fanny was being recognized for her musical gifts to the point where she was recommended as a pupil to the newly established Royal Academy of Music. And while Fanny was being groomed for further education and something she could excel at, Charles wondered why, after the holidays came and went, he wasn't also being sent off to school. It was London, there was plenty of schools, and his parents had the money, if they had only budgeted better. That's past the time Charles took to writing descriptions of people he observed. Not heroic people, like most children would admire, but odd and old ones. A talkative barber that would go on and on about the war and Napoleon's mistakes. And a deaf woman that worked in the kitchen and prepared delicate hashes with walnut ketchup. Which I don't know what it is, and I don't think I like it. It, Ketchup is technically a sauce that's made with vinegar and tomatoes. Well, I don't think it has to be made with tomatoes because it's called tomato ketchup. So you take the tomato out of there, then I guess you can make it with anything. I don't know. If you're a chef, email us and let us know what exactly walnut ketchup is. I could look it up, but... Or if you're from England and it's just an English thing. If they're from England, they're probably just like, it's just vinegar. Everything's vinegar. Everything (laughs) over here is vinegar. Now, in 1823, fed up by the slow pace of her husband's salary increasing, Elizabeth decided to open a school. Encouraged by how she was able to teach her own children, she thought she could teach others. So she took a lease on a larger house in Gower Street North and set a brass plate that said, Mrs. Dickens's establishment. They moved out of their small house, leaving behind a pile of unpaid bills, and moved to the much more spacious house. Charles was sent out with flyers advertising the school, hoping that he might be able to go to school himself. But no pupils arrived, and no inquiries were made. All that happened was that they were pursued by creditors with an increasing curiosity. John tried to hide and sneak away, But in February of 1824, John was arrested for debt. 
He was kept at the sponging house by a bailiff as a preliminary place for holding debtors. Charles was sent by his mother to attend on him, and he was used by his father as a messenger to carry his various apologies and requests for help to family and friends. No help came. That's what happens when you burn bridges. Yes, it is. John would be sent to Marshallacy Debtor's Prison. When he was sent away, John made a dramatic, this is the end of me statement that put Charles in a depressed mood. But the next day, when his mother sent him to see John in Marshallacy, he found his dad in good spirits. He offered Charles, Charles the advice that with an income of 20 pounds a year, an expenditure of 19 pounds meant happiness. But an expenditure of one pound more meant unhappiness. And he had to come to the real, realization that he could continue to receive his salary and no longer be pestered by creditors. Because he was still getting paid from the Navy pay office, even though he was in debtor's prison. But nobody's coming after him because he was in debtor's prison. Nice. <laughs> uh, didn't help his family at all, but it got the people off his back. Now, meanwhile, at the Gower House, things were getting worse every day. Charles, the man of the house at 12, had to pawn his beloved books, then all the furniture, until the house was bare and the family had to camp out in two bare rooms in the cold weather. All these experiences would be brought back out in his writing. Again, you write what you know. Friend James Lamart came to see Elizabeth with a helpful proposal. He was managing a small warehouse where boot and shoe blackening was manufactured and put into pots to be sold. He suggested that maybe Charles should come work there covering and labeling the pots of blackening. A fairly easy job, especially compared to some of the other jobs children were doing at that time, i.e. three-year-old chimney sweeps and five-year-old coal miners, like we talked about again in Mm -hmm. Rom Stoker. Uh, Lamarck vowed to give Charles daily lessons on his lunch break to keep up with his studies. According to Charles, about 25 years later, his parents felt just fine about the proposal. He was horrified at the thought of going to work at a warehouse as a child. He knew, I shouldn't be doing this type of stuff. I'm 12. I should be in school. Yes, I I agree. But it, it would lead to a lifelong passion of fighting against child labor. He does, he does use all these experiences in some way to try to make things better for people. So Now, when Charles went to work, he showed up in a suit and jacket. He was immediately liked by his fo- fellow child co-workers like Bob Fagan, an orphan, and Paul Green, the son of a fireman. They called him the young gentleman. He was understandably upset at the arrangement. His parents seemingly only cared about Fanny's education, and he was v- very dramatic about it. Quote, No words can express the secret agony of my soul as I sank into this companionship, the sense I had had of being utterly neglected and hopeless. Of the shame I felt in my position, my whole nature was penetrated with grief and humiliation. (laughs) Such a drama queen. It's like, listen, you're in a warehouse, you're in a warehouse labeling pots. It's not like it's, you're not dying. You're okay. It's not even manual labor. It's just this side of manual labor. You may have to take the jacket off. (laughs) That's about it. I mean, for fuck's sake. But yes, he was very dramatic about it. 
Now, soon Elizabeth had to give up the Gower Street house and had to join her husband in the Marshallisey prison with the smaller of the children. Apparently, they just let the whole family move in. I don't know what that was about, but yeah, they just apparently all went and lived there with him. Except Fanny remained at the academy while Charles went to live with a horrible woman named Mrs. Roy Lance in Camden Town who took in children cheaply and treated them as such. <sighs> now, he shared a room with two other boys, and now his walk to work was significantly longer. On Sundays, he would meet with Fanny, and they would go together to spend the day with the family at the prison. He finally confided in his family about the situation and begged for change. They found him another place closer to the prison with a kind landlord. And now he would be able to eat meals with his family when not at work. He was able to work out on his own budget and make sure he had money to last until payday by wrapping his coins into seven little parcels, labeling each with a day of the week. Very interesting. Uh-huh. And in April, John's mother died, and William paid off his brother's debts to get him out of jail. He was out by May, and he was asking the Navy pay office to be retired early with an invalid's pension after attaining a note from a doctor saying he suffered from a bladder complaint. It hurts when I pee. Can I retire early? <laughs> I, I think that's pretty much what it was. Yeah. Oh, my God. Now, the whole family ended up moving in with Mrs. Roylance. They uh, continued to move from place to place so many times after that that most researchers get confused on where they lived when. It's That is in the book. Like, there are too many moves for me to mention because most people are confused about where they lived when. That's a lot. That is a lot. Fuck, I've moved around a lot, but I can name every place I've lived. Me too. Well, I mean, I haven't moved around a lot, but still. I've moved around a lot. I know you have. <laughs> now, in March of 1825, John was finally given his retirement papers. Charles had been working at the warehouse for just over a year at this point. For some reason, we don't know why, John decided that Charles should be in school and not work, and he was sent to the Wellington House Academy. His mother wanted him to continue to work, but once John pulled him out of the warehouse, neither parent ever mentioned the time of Charles' child labor ever again. Quote, From that hour, my father and mother have been stricken dumb upon it. I have never heard the least allusion to it, however far off or remote, from either of them. It's like it never fucking happened. It's just, hey, you remember that time I worked at a warehouse? And they're both like, what? Yeah. Wow. Now, in February 1827, Charles's education came again to an end. John would no, could no longer afford the tuition. John had been supplementing his pension with writing about marine insurance for the British press, but the paper folded in 1826. He had also started to, again, rack up debt. On top of this, the family was evicted from the house they were currently staying at, and Elizabeth found out that, at the age of 38, she was again pregnant. Has he ever heard of wrap it before you tap it? Well, this was the time where condoms were made out of fucking lamb bladder. Lambskin. If you were lucky, you got lambskin. If you were lucky. Fanny was only able to stay on at the academy by taking a part-time teaching gig there. All the other kids were able to stay in school, but Charles had to again go out and make a living. His mother helped him get a job as a clerk, a really 
just an office boy, at the Ellison Blackmore Law Firm. The other clerks liked him. He was good at imitations and would do them of all the people that amused him, the people on the street, the old women that swept the office, clients, other lawyers. Charles would create comedic songs and dances to get laughs. He started spending any extra money he had on going to the theater. Bro, you're going to lose it. You're going to be like your daddy. Nah. He just, uh, he, I mean, any extra money he had. It's not, he wasn't spending all of his money on shit. Extra money he had, he'd go to the theater. Yeah, but he could have saved it so that he didn't, you know, he could have had a life to build off of. Okay, so Charles Dickens gets his life off the ground pretty fucking quick. He does not waste time. Once he's old enough to start making money and start negotiating for more money, he does it. He He's not a slouch. He is not uh, a Bram Stoker who waits until he's, you know, in his 40s to finally write something that really, really sells. He's not somebody who waits. He gets straight to it. Okay. Okay. Now, the family found new lodgings at number 17, the Polygon, a new architectural innovation of the 1790s, a ring of four-story houses built around a central garden. Now, when Charles's boss, Blackmore, got married, he gave the whole office dinner, and one clerk stayed away sick the next day, insisting on his return that it was not the drink that made him ill. Quote, it was the salmon. I'm sure it was. Charles would use the line verbatim in his first novel, where he, where the respectable Mr. Pickwick makes the same excuse after getting drunk. It was the salmon. No judgment in Charles's jokes. He loved wine and the liquor along with cigars, and would be known to mock the temperance movement. He wouldn't have liked CM Punk. Probably not. No, because he was a... Straight he, edge. he loved to smoke, and he was a boozer. And it gets worse as he uh, when he gets really old. He likes to drink. Now, in November 1827, another brother was born, named after an emperor, Augustus. Charles called him Moses, after the son of the Vicar of Wakefield. A favorite book. Moses became Moses when spoken through a head cold stricken nose. Moses became Boz, which would be the pen name he would adopt for his first published writing. You ever heard of Boz? Um, not that I can recall right well, you're now. Gonna, you're going to hear more about Boz, but Boz, if you ever hear anybody talk about Boz, that is Charles Dickens. Now, in 1828, he left the law office to work for Charles Moley with Thomas Mitten, whom he knew from the Polygon. They became good friends, and Mitten would go on and act as Charles's solicitor. Charles says the law as a murky business that thrived on delay, complications, and confusion. It's no surprise that lawyers in his stories are almost always the bad guys, or at least obstacles, for the main characters to surpass. Now, over the next few years, Charles kept himself busy with continuous self-imposed tasks, paid work for, paid work or self-education. He spent a good amount of time observing the voices, dramas, absurdities, and tragedies of London, observations that would be stored up for years and then written about in his novels. He wrote sketches for papers and magazines describing the men of the North London walking to work, Middle-aged men making the same amount after 20 years of work as they did the day they started. The inspiration for one of his most famous characters, Bob Cratchit. 
Now, in 1829, Charles left Moly's after learning shorthand well enough to find work as a reporter in the ecclesiastical courts at the Doctor's Commons. You're giving me a look. I don't know either. No, that's a tongue twister. <laughs> Say it three times fast. Yeah. Uh, and for somebody who can barely speak the way it is, yes, I agree. <laughs> now, they dealt mostly with marriage, divorce, wills, and that sort of thing. The work was irregular. He had to wait in a box to be chosen for his shorthand services. I don't imagine it was actually a box. It was probably just a, an area that they called the box. You know, but when he turned 18, he applied to the British Museum for a ticket to the reading room. There, he could read and study everything from the history of England to medical books on anatomy and sex and everything in between. In May of 1830, at age 18, Charles met 20-year-old Maria Beadnell and was in love almost instantly and remained obsessed for the next three years. Uh, he would use his memory of falling for her and David Copperfield. He wanted to marry her, and apparently she him. But as things go this time, if you wanted to be married, you had to be of the same social class. And the Beadnells were above the Dickenses. Mrs. Beadnell didn't even learn his name, calling him Mr. Dickon. <clears throat> probably just to be a cuntin. Yeah, probably. Now, in order to improve his position, he started going to his uncle's editorial office, where he ran the Mirror of Parliament. Wanting to be a par parliamentary reporter, he quickly proved himself not having to wait around to be offered work. Instead, he had to be available for debates, which could go on until the late hours of the evening. He had the reputation for speed and accuracy and may have contributed to the full report of the first major debate on the proposed Reform Act in March of 1831, given in the mirror. A while, after a while, he was offered a staff job and in 1832 started reporting for a new paper, The True Sun. Charles was on the side of reform almost always. Bills against slavery, the protection of factory workers and miners all had his support. The reporting kept him busy, and when he wasn't reporting, he was in the reading room studying, leaving no time for the Beadnells or social life. Now, the Beadnells finally took action to end the daughter's flirtation by sending her to Paris, and when she returned, it was clear that she had lost all interest in him. She is very flaky. Maria is a very flaky, kind of crazy person. Uh, she's a one minute, one minute she's in love with you, the next minute. I know someone like that. We're not going to say who that is, but... I know someone like it's that. It's kind of like, if you're not around me, I'm not in love with you type of thing. And even when you are around me, I'm, I'm kind of not in love with you type of thing. She's very... Whorish? Well, no, she's very, I know my class and I can I know what I can have type of person. So Yeah, but the person she'll you're use, thinking of well, is... She, yeah, no, but she'll use the, per, the people below her for whatever she wants. But then when, when it comes to like the real stuff, like... So... Charles, he he didn't take this well. They went to a, a party and they saw each other, and she and she kind of laughed at him when he when he told her how much he, he loved her and wanted to marry her. She kind of laughed at him. And she's like, no, <laughs> just yeah, just a cunt. So, uh, uh, he later told Maria that quote, 
When we were falling off of each other, I came from the House of Commons many a night at two or three o'clock in the morning, only to wander past the place she was asleep in. Her house was quite out of the way, causing him maybe upwards of a two-hour detour on foot just to walk past her house. Yeah, he has some stuff going on, too. Uh, there's I, there's some stuff. Obsessive. I, well, there's some stuff I have in here where he his mood really flips, like, on a dime sometimes. And, like, people will say that he's very loving one day, and then the next day he acts like he doesn't even fucking know who you are. So he's got his own type of shit going on. Too much lead in the paint back then, I think. Now, during all this work, love, study, and constant moving... He was pursuing another completely different and overpowering passion, the theater. He went to a play almost every night for at least three years, practicing his own acting for four to six hours a day, by his own account, probably being embellished, but he would have been too busy to dedicate that much time on top of everything else he was doing. Now, he applied to audition for the manager at the Covent Garden, but the day before he was to appear, he was struck with one of his incapacitating colds, and he had to cancel. He never reapplied, but also never lost the feeling that the theater was, in some sense, his true destiny. It's told by people that got to see him read and act that he was actually very good, putting feeling into each reading. In 1833, he started putting on private performances of his own at his family's upstairs lodgings, he was stage manager, actor, singer, prologue writer, scenery builder, and accordionist in the band. <laughs> I just imagine him playing the accordion, the accordion with the uh, harmonica in his mouth and the cymbals in his knees. And then, like, the tapping of the foot to play the drum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think about that. Very good. Yes. Now, friends helped with the scenery painting and lighting. He would continue to write plays and sketches for the next few years while looking for more work. And meanwhile, his father stopped working for Charles's uncle at the Mirror of Parliament and was again falling into debt. Charles was? No, John. His father. Oh, okay. Now, in August, Charles was offered a permanent job for the Morning Chronicle with a salary of five guineas a week. Now, I don't know what a guinea is. A guinea was a gold coin worth about... 21 shillings. Uh, if you don't know how much a shilling is worth, I don't know what to fucking tell you, because I didn't look that far up. But uh, a guinea is, they, they got the gold from... Papua New Guinea? I guess. And that's why they were called guineas. But it doesn't sound like it's worth much. That he would get his sketches published under the pen name of Boz and be sent out to reporting jobs all over England. Charles was now finally in a situation where he had a stable source of income and could start to organize his life. His father, on the other hand, had again been arrested and taken to a sponging house. Uh, he was behind on payments uh, for his wine merchant and his rent. Jesus Christ. Wait. Two things that you should always, always pay before anything else. Your house payment. And your wine merchant. And your wine merchant. <laughs> I mean, that's economics 101 in high school. Listen, you make sure you pay for your rent, and you make sure you pay your motherfucking wine merchant. Yes, exactly. Because you're going to need a roof over your head, and you're going to need sustenance. 
Because if that's all the money you have is to pay for rent and your wine merchant, you're going to need a roof over your head and to be fucking plastered all the time. Yeah. Because you're going to be depressed. (laughs) (laughs) It makes complete fucking sense. Uh, Charles feared he'd be taken in, too, since he lived at the same address as his father. Charles took to asking friends for help and started taking more freelance jobs to pay off his father's debt. A common theme for the rest of John's life. John took off to the North End to escape his other creditors, and the family moved near the Adolfi to be near Fanny, who started performing there steadily. You you remember hearing about the Adolfi mm-hmm. from Bram Stoker, the other theater that he didn't, you know, practically live in? But Charles decided it was time for him to separate himself from the family and stand on his own. He found a place at an inn for 35 pounds a year, Brother Frederick moved with him to help with the costs, so not technically on his own. Now, even though Charles wanted to be independent, he also didn't want to be alone. And he worked best with people to play off of. I'm going to be independent. I'm going to stand on my own. You want to go? Well, I mean, having a roommate is, you're, you're technically living on your own. You're just not paying your bills. Well, it's his yourself. brother, and his brother doesn't have a job yet. So he's supporting him, at least for a little bit. How much garlic did you put in dinner? A good amount. Yes, I, can, Jan- <laughs> I can smell it. In January of 1835, he would get a raise to seven guineas a week. When he started contributing his sketches and stories to the Morning Chronicle sister evening paper, take a guess what the evening paper for the Morning Chronicle's name is. Evening Chronicle. God damn it, you're smart. Co-editor of the Chronicle was George Hogarth. Every time I hear that name, I think of the Iron Giant. Yeah. Hogarth? Hogarth? Who names their kid Hogarth? And George was quite fond of Charles, calling him the most talented journalist on their staff. Hogarth started inviting Charles to his home for meals and conversation. It was on one of Charles' first visits to the house that he met George's 19-year-old daughter, Catherine. She was not like the other girls he met, very different from Maria Biedenel's. She was slim, shapely, and pleasant-looking, with a gentle manner, but without the sparkling beauty that Maria had. I believe Maria was just like the supermodel knockout, and I think Catherine was probably just the girl-next-door type. Honestly, I'd rather have the girl-next-door type. Yeah, but when you first met me, you thought I was like the supermodel. I still think you're beautiful, but I see the girl-next-door type in you, but the way you, you act, the way you talk, the way you dress, your fucking spiky perp, uh, pink hair that you got. It's more purple in this light, but out there it's pink. You're more the girl-next-door next door type, and I like it. Oh, you too, <laughs> But with Maria's beauty came an unpredictable behavior that hurt him in the end. He decided that maybe the stability was a better quality than the beauty. Compromise. Okay. You're not as pretty as she was, but you're not fucking crazy. You better not say that to her. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know if he did or not. Honestly, wouldn't be surprised if he did. Now, he decided quickly to marry her. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Ladies, you know that man in your life with the big, beautiful beard? Or the one trying to grow a beard, even if it's just a little stubble? 
Well, what you might not know is that the skin underneath all that face fur can get dried out and super itchy, causing scratching that leads to flaking, and if there's anything worse than head dandruff, it's beard dandruff. That's why we've teamed up with TheBeardStruggle.com. They know what goes into having a big, glorious beard, hence the name. And they've created some of the best products in the market to help the man in your life tame those majestic chin locks and soothe the skin underneath. Be it the day and night oils, which keep the beard soft and the skin moisturized, and they smell great by the way, or the beard straightener that calms those extra curly face hairs and makes that beard look fuller and healthier. Kevin uses these products and his beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. And I, I really enjoy playing with the beard now. Beardstruggle.com uses 100% all natural ingredients, they never test on animals, and have a 90-day money-back guarantee. All you have to do is go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on the link in the show notes, and don't forget to use our exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, for 15% off at checkout. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now! He is never very forthright with his reasoning, but he would come to regard this decision as the worst mistake in his life. No shit, Sherlock. You don't just meet somebody you meet, or you don't marry someone you just meet. For the first time, he believed he was in love with her, and her with him. Plus, she wasn't overly clever or talented and could never be his intellectual equal, which may have been another reason to marry her. The more desirable women in his books were usually the more foolish ones, not the clever ones. It's a pretty good it's a pretty agreed upon theory that he wanted a wife, someone that could cook him dinner and fuck him, but not an equal. He would have male friends for that. Not like in a gay way. No, no, no. Not no, that there's no. anything I, wrong I, with that. I get it. So he's he's for or he's against slavery, he's against children working in the workforce. He's against all this other shit, but he's a fucking misogynist bastard. Well, yeah, it's the 1830s. All men are pretty much misogynists because that's how they've been raised. Because they see their mothers doing the exact same thing. That type of stuff didn't change until damn near our generation. Because you can see how certain people treat other people. I'm not naming names on here. But you can, I mean, people that we know quite well that the, uh, the man maybe doesn't do everything around the house that he could to help the woman out. Just saying. Now, the summer of 1835, he moved into rooms near the Hogarth house to be near Catherine. In letters, he called her, quote, Dear Mouse, Darling Tatey, and this is my favorite one, My Own Dearest Darling Pig. <laughs> what the fuck? I'm guessing it was a playful thing. I don't know. That doesn't sound playful. You don't call a woman pig ever. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just. I'm, just re- I'm reporting what I read. That he called. That there are there are letters where he started off by calling her my own dearest darling pig. Maybe it was a, a term of endearment, an inside joke that we didn't know that we don't know anything about. And We've he, called he each other. He never said that she was fat. He said she was Ex- slim and curvy, but slim and shapely, which I imagine means she had an ass and she had tits, which is usually what that means. She was a butterface. It, it said that she was pleasant looking, just not, you know. Tits and ass can be pleasant looking. Well, no, I mean in the face. She, she 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 looked okay from what I understand, but she, you know she just wasn't the knockout apparently that Maria was. 
I don't know. It could have been a term of endearment. It, you and I have called each other shit before. A lot of people would see that and go, well, that's that's not nice to say to your you husband or wife. Me, you call me turd face and I call you butt pimple. We've said other shit to things to, to each other before, but... I call you asshole and dickhead and... Yeah, you know. <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> But that's only when you act like that. Oh, that's not maybe like... she was acting like a fucking pig. And uh, I know they they in England. You watch a lot of shows. Guys call women cows when they're just being bitches. Instead of calling them a bitch, they call them a cow. Doesn't mean they're big and fat. Usually the the females are quite hefty when they're being called a cow. No, I've seen plenty of them where they're thinner. They, they they're just you know average sized women. They call them a cow because they're being stupid or bitchy anyway we don't know but he would send her these letters asking her to come make him breakfast so he could wake up in the morning to her uh, but he also let her know that even though he was warmly and deeply attached to her his words not mine he would give her up if she showed him any coldness or that she had grown or started to grow weary of him he would be in charge of his life and this relationship. So it's like, if you, if, uh, you know, I really love you. I want to spend a lot of time with you. I want us to be together. But if you start being a certain way or start having second thoughts, I'm not sticking around. I'm not fucking playing. I'm, I'm going. I'm in, I'm in charge. Pretty much what he was saying. Okay. What's the, the masculine form of the word cunt? Uh, dick, I guess. Or prick. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it just doesn't sound strong enough for him right now. In 1835, busy, a very busy year. Uh, if he wasn't at the House of Commons until 1.30 a.m., he was away covering the provinces, elections, liberal, liberal dinners, Lord speeches, all while straining to get his report in before that of the other rival papers, especially the Times by bribing postboys and taking dictations in the pelting rain. Then, his other editor at the Morning Chronicle decided that maybe he should also start reviewing plays on top of sketch writing and reporting. So now, he was in the theater in the evenings again, having to write after he got home or early into the morning. Sometimes the strain got overwhelming. He told Catherine he was, quote, taken so extremely unwell when we got to Kingsbridge last night that I really thought I should have been unable to proceed. My head was so extremely bad, and the dizziness affected my sight so much that I could scarcely see at all. In addition to which, cheerful symptoms my tottering legs gave me the appearance of being particularly drunk. I, I do love that everything he writes has this poetic sense to it. It, it feels grander than what it is. He's like, yes. I'm so fucking tired, I look like I'm drunk. He's got to turn it into this fucking, like, eight-part soliloquy. Yes, like, when, yeah. I, when I would write you notes, everything was more grandier than... Yeah. Now, he took a concoction of a purgative made from mercury called calomel, which acted on the liver and produced, quote... Such singular evolutions in my interior that I am unable to leave home. So I kind of... Got diarrhea? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's the, uh, that's the second person in our Big Ten that we've talked about getting diarrhea in their series. 
Now, before the year was done, he was writing the long vocal work for a comic opera on the English theme, The Village Conquettes, with music by Fanny's friend from her student days, John Hula. He was also overseeing the proofs of his first book. A writer named Harrison Ainsworth saw Boz's writings in the Chronicle and set out to meet the real man. Now, when they met, Ainsworth urged him to publish a collection of his sketches. Ainsworth gave him his publisher, John Macron, and another friend, and the most admired artist in the country, George Cruikshank. The title of the work would be Sketches by Boz, Illustrative of Everyday Life and Everyday People. Published in two volumes, February 8th, 1836, the day after his 24th birthday. It's a pretty good birthday present to publish uh, two different things. Yes, it is. At 1836, <laughs> would start off Rocky, suffering again from the side spasms from his youth. He wrote to Catherine, quote, I am so ill this morning that I am unable to work. I wrote till 3 o'clock this morning. I had not done for the paper till 8 and passed the whole night in a state of exquisite torture from the spasm in my side far exceeding anything I'd ever felt. It still continues exceedingly painful in my head, and my head is aching so from pain and want of rest that I can hardly hold it up. I have not had so severe an attack since I was a child. He did, however, end up fighting through the pain and to get to the House of Commons for debates or the theater to write reviews and to write sketches for the other papers on a deadline and work on the opera. On top, he also threw teaching Catherine's younger brother shorthand and trying to find his brother Fred a job. I told you, busy motherfucker. So he wasn't like Stoker or any of the other authors that we've covered so far because he actually met his deadlines. Uh, so he... he he tried as hard as he could to meet the majority of his deadlines. However, you will come to find out that sometimes if he didn't think he could meet a deadline or he didn't really want to do a project, he would just say, fuck it, not do it. Okay. Go back on his word. Okay. Yeah. Now, Charles and John McCrone became close friends while working on getting sketches by Boz published, all the way to McCrone being asked to be Charles's best man and McCrone giving Fred a job in his accountant department. The relationship worked well. Sketches was well-reviewed, quote, a close and acute observer of character and manners and for showing the vices and wretchedness of London life. And it was praised for its wit, truth, and descriptive powers. It sold well and went into a second edition in the summer. And also that February, William Hall had stopped by Charles's house to see if he would want to write sketches to go with drawings by a young artist, Robert Seymour who was specialized in sporting scenes. Charles was interested, and Hall offered him 14 pounds for each monthly episode. This relationship made Hall and his partner, Edward Chapman, rich and helped establish Charles as a leader among the novelists of the time. Charles saw that the money would allow him to keep a wife and live comfortably, and he already had an idea for a character, Mr. Pickwick a rich, retired businessman with a taste for good food and a tendency to drink too much. He also thought he would vary the story of his adventures by inserting separate, unconnected short stories periodically. And while he was at it, he offered Chapman and Hall The Strange Gentleman, a farce he had adapted from one of his stories, which would be put on later in the years 
And they agreed to publish that, too. So he's getting shit done. So he doesn't wait. He goes out there and he does it. Okay. And on April 1836, Charles and Catherine would get married at St. Luke's Church in Chelsea in the presence of their immediate families and a few friends. They honeymooned in a village between Rochester and Gravesend, but only for a week so he could return to working on Pickwick. Marriage was, for him, at least a solution to the problem of sex. The notion of going to bed pleased him, as it should please a new, a new husband. Catherine was pregnant in the first month of their marriage. <laughs> uh, Catherine's going to be pregnant a lot over the next, you know, decade, decade and a half. More pregnant than not pregnant. <sighs> Get a boy. Now, soon they were in their newly furnished suite of rooms, and Catherine was to take over the responsibilities of being a wife in charge of the domestic life. Her 16-year-old sister, Mary, was often with them. When Catherine began dealing with the physical changes of pregnancy or felt sick, it was Mary that gave Charles companionship. It's an audio. You need to voice your concern, not just give me a look. Fuck no. Fuck no what? There'd be no fucking way. My, I just said companionship. I didn't say sex. Just companionship. Oh, no. You know damn well he'd be having sex with that bitch. <laughs> it doesn't say anywhere that they ever did anything physical. Companionship. Is as in as in they spent time together, He, she kept him uh, company. His own wife could keep him company. She was sick with the pregnancy. She Her pregnancies did not go well. She, was, she had very hard pregnancies. Before and after the labor, during the labor. It, it, it was all tough for her. Uh, Pickwick was not selling as hoped. Tragically, near the end of April, depression would take hold of Robert Seymour, and he shot himself. And <laughs> Again, she almost spits out Pepsi all over the not place. Not because I was laughing, because I wasn't expecting... You didn't expect that? No. Yeah. Now, an artist by the name of Halbot K. Brown stepped in to take over the illustration duties, calling himself Fizz to Charles's Boz. Fizz. Boz. Boz and Fizz. Fizz and Balls. Balls. Fizzy <laughs> balls. <laughs> balls. Now, in May, Charles agreed with Macron that he would write a three-volume novel called Gabriel Vardone. This would go on to become Barnaby Rudge. A lot of you not, might have never heard of Barnaby Rudge. That's because, as you will come to find out, what it does finally get written, everybody pretty much is at the same agreement that it wasn't good. So, Now, the second volume of Sketches was being prepared, and he still had his full-time job at the Chronicle. Now, that June sales of month's Pickwick stories rose with the addition of Pickwick's cockney servant, Sam Weller. It was said that Boz had the town by the ear. Everyone from butcher boys to judges and politicians were reading them. He showed that he was on the side of the ordinary people with characters like Jingle, Sam Weller, Snodgrass and Winkle, Mrs. Leo Hunter, the cultural hostess with her ode of an expiring frog, the political journalist Slurk and Pot, and the drunken medical student Bob Sawyer. So that's what you want, a drunken medical student. Yeah. I mean... It makes sense. I think most medical students are drunk. <laughs> now, 
in the Alex Haley series, we had talked about taking on projects that he just couldn't get to. Uh, promising things he couldn't give and overloading his schedule with too many projects. That is all kid stuff compared to Dickens. Uh, in August, he agreed to write a children's book for a third publisher, Thomas Teague, for £100. Then later that month, he entered into negotiations with a fourth publisher, Richard Bentley, who outbid Macron for his next novel at £400. Charles got him up to £500, but only with the promise of two novels instead of one. Then he sold Bentley the publishing rights to his opera, and Charles agreed to become editor of a monthly magazine eventually called Bentley's Miscellany, to which he would also contribute his own material every month. Like, that's Ian. Yeah. Now, on September 29th, his farce, The Strange Gentleman, premiered at the St. James's Theater with well-loved comic actor John Pritt Harley playing the lead. It was a success and ran for 60 nights. So not bad. Two months. Yeah, not bad. Now, in November, Charles signed another agreement with Bentley and then tendered his resignation to the Chronicle. He also asked Macron to be withdrawn from the agreement with the three-volume novel. Neither the editor at the Chronicle or Macron were happy about the situation. Macron would still publish the second series of sketches in December, but things between the two would remain strained. So now his commitments were... Monthly installments for Pickwick at at least another year. More pieces for sketches. Both his farce and his opera were being published and needed seeing through through the press. A promised children's book called Solomon Bell, the rare showman due by Christmas. Getting prepared for editing Bentley's Miscellany, which began in January. And he must commission articles and contribute his own every month. Chapman and Hall wanted a sequel to Pickwick. Macron still wanted what would become Barnaby Rudge, and Bentley was expecting two novels. I mean, don't bite off more than you can chew. Well, and at the time, it was just, I need money, I need money, I need money, I need money. So he was just so saying, just saying yes. yes there. Again, like Alex Haley. Just a more amped up version, I think. Because he was taking on a lot more than he was. I mean, I, I get what he's doing. Like, on the days that I feel good, I'm like, I can take on the world. I can do this, I can do this, and I can do this. And then my body tells me, no, you can only do part of this. Yeah. And that's what he's going to figure out. What is that they say with uh, fibromyalgia? Do you say you have an, a certain amount of spoons every day that you yes. can use? Yeah, it's, that's kind of like what it is. Now, this, all of this would be an almost impossible task for one man to complete in any reasonable amount of time. And it was starting to piss off the people he made his promises of material to when he would have to back out. Problem was that as his fame grew and he was more in demand, he resented having made agreements for smaller amounts of money than what he could now get. And if you ask Charles, each publisher started off with a good relationship, but eventually turned into a villain. But Charles was the one that went back on his word. Now, the children's book was dropped and his friend... Macron was now a, quote, blackguard and a robber, and Bentley became a, quote, infernal, rich, plundering, thundering old Jew. <gasps> Dialogue straight out of Oliver Twist. So now he's a racist, too. <laughs> now, the only thing he felt bad about was being late on delivery to Chapman and Hall for his monthly installment of Pickwick. Quote, if I were to live a hundred years and write three novels in each, I should never be so proud of any of them as I am of Pickwick, feeling as I do that it made its own way. He lo that was his f 
favorite thing that he wrote was this the, the Pickwick Papers, this whole serialized story that he was writing. Now, he tried to strong-arm Macron out of his commitment for the three-volume novel by instructing his other publishers to re- refuse Macron's advertisements for the book. Macron gave in only after Charles sold him the copyrights to the first two sketches by Boz for only £100. For the second series, Charles wrote a final piece, The Drunkard's Death, intended to finish the book, but it was the worst in the series, a melodramatic tale of a drunkard given to wild debauchery, embiebered of the slow, sure poison that hurries its victims madly into a degradation and death. Now, when his wife lies dying of a broken heart, he left the tavern to be by her bedside in time to see her die. Their sons leave after this, but one night one comes back, hiding from the police after committing a capital crime, and unwisely trusts his father to hide him. The drunkard betrays him and is cursed as the son goes to the gallows. Abandoned by his daughters, he takes himself to the Thames, jumps in, changes his mind, screams in terror for help, remembers the curse of his son, and is carried away by the current to his death. I think that would be a great story to read. Well, a lot of people said that the 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 it, there was a lot of cliche in it. The plot was patchy. It was something that just looked like he threw it together because he didn't give a fuck because he had sold the copyright to it. So I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But now his opera, The Village Conquettes, opened on December sixth, and the spectators cheered for Boz. But a young cri- critic named John Forster had other feelings and wrote, "Quote." The liver, too, was totally unworthy of Boz, although the audience screamed for Boz. Now we have a great respect and liking for Boz. The Pickwick Papers have made him, as our readers are very well aware, an especially favorite with us. Bad as the opera is, we feel assured that if Mr. Braham, the producer, will make arrangements to parade the living Boz every night after the opera, he will ensure for a certain attraction. Charles wrote to Hula, music writer for the opera, and said, quote, It is rather depreciatory of the opera, but so well done that I cannot help laughing at it. And for the life and soul of me, apparently Charles would go on to agree with Forrester and would ask for his name, Boz, to be removed from the bill, and he and Forrester would become the best of friends. Nice. Sure. I mean, he, he trashes his opera. Yes. And then, But he he's like, I, you know, he says, like, well, you're writing shit about the opera, but what you're saying is funny, so. Okay. Yeah. I get it. Charles would confess to his friend Tom Beard that whatever his disapproval disapproval of drunkenness in the print quote i arrived home at one o'clock this morning dead drunk and was put to my bed by my loving missus hinting to his new and ongoing worsening vice we can only assume that Catherine had at least a little pleasure in the fact that her i can do i can do and handle anything on my own husband needed her to care for him in this condition yeah i i like it when i get to take care of you it doesn't happen very often but I, I do like when I get to take care of you. Because you take care of me all the time. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's why she wanted to take I think she wanted to take care of him because he he's just so, well, I'm me and I can take control of everything. And now all of a sudden he couldn't. And I, I think she's getting a little bit of glee like, a, hey, you can't control this, can you, fucker? 
Well, no, that's I. I like taking care of you, but the fact that you never let me do it, even when you are sick, I relish in the moments that I do get to take care of you. Well, I think she was doing. I think she was relishing more in spite than in. <laughs> now, the evening of January fifth, eighteen thirty-seven, Catherine went into labor. Charles was home, and by the morning, both his mother and Catherine's mother were there to assist with the birth. Catherine's sister Mary also came along. He left his wife in the hands of their mothers and the doctors that soon came and left the house with Mary for the day. They spent most of their time wandering from second-hand store to second-hand store, searching for a small table for the bedroom for Catherine. After six in the evening on the 6th, Catherine gave birth to Charles Culliford Baugh's Dickens. Nice. A healthy baby boy, despite a hard and trying birth. If you ask Charles about that night a year later... All he would tell you he could really remember was taking Mary home for the night in a hackney cab and walking home. Mary came back the next day and remained there for the rest of the month to help care for her sister, nephew, and brother-in-law. Now, with everything going on, it all still had to fall in line behind his work schedule. He was determined to keep up his installments of Pickwick and was preparing to embark on a new novel for Bentley. A little thing, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Oliver Twist. Olive or twist. Olive or twist. It was scheduled to appear in monthly numbers starting in February in the miscellany. The two serial stories would be running simultaneously for 10 months. He was warned by friends against serial publications, and with Pickwick and Oliver Twist, he would triumphantly prove them wrong, with both being praised by readers. Now, unlike with many writings where authors can Write down, go back, fix, cut in, erase, go back again, fix again, cut in, change other things, fix the beginning to meet up with the end. These all had to be thought out and the story completely figured out at the start because once they were set to paper, there was no going back. Many times he just barely made the deadline. You gotta remember, he's writing both of these novels at the exact same time, chapter by chapter. Ooh. Yeah. Now, two weeks after giving birth, Catherine was suffering from depression. Now, only Charles could get her to eat. He himself had a, quote, violent attack of God knows what in the head and took as much medicine as would be given to an ordinary-sized horse. Was he really sick, or was he just, oh, my wife's sick, so now I, oh, she has she has it, so I have it. I know guys who all of a sudden, oh, their wife has postpartum depression, now all of a sudden they have postpartum depression. I mean, guys can get it, too. I know, but it's... I, okay. Now, a wet nurse had to be brought in to feed the baby. This apparently only lasted for about five weeks as they went on a vacation, and after returning home, they moved into a nicer, bigger house, which seemingly helped. How? I don't know. Because that's not usually what cures depression, just going on a vacation and then buying a bigger house. Maybe it was the time away from the kids. Uh, uh, well, no, she took the kid with them, with them but it was five weeks. I'm going to be away from a newborn baby for five weeks. Yes. Now, at this time, Charles's parents were down to just taking care of Augustus. The other boys had moved out. And Alfred was at boarding school. Fanny had gotten married to another musician. So, it was the consensus that John would do a better job at providing for himself and his wife. They were wrong. He saw his son's success as an encouragement to expect more handouts. It also offered him the possibility of capitalizing on his name. These activities verged on criminal, 
but he knew that Charles would always bail him out if only to keep his own name clean, and he was right. Hawking cat, that sounds like someone I know. <laughs> yeah. My egg donut. Uh-huh. Now, over the spring, they celebrated the popularity and high sales numbers of Pickwick and Oliver Twist. Near the end of April, they threw a great party at their new home with Bentley, his father John, Catherine's father George, sister Fanny, and his sister-in-law Mary. The following Saturday evening, he took his wife and Mary to the theater and had a great time, ate, drank, went to bed around 1 in the morning. A few minutes later, Charles heard a cry from Mary's bedroom. He found her still in her clothes and visibly ill. They sent for a doctor, but even though she was only 17 and up until that time in perfect health, she, as Charles put it, quote, sank under the attack and died. Died in such a calm and gentle sleep that although I held, I had held her in my arms for some time before, when she was currently living, for she swallowed a little brandy from my hand, I continued to support her lifeless form long after her soul had fled to heaven. Now, this was about 3 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. Thank God she died in my arms. The very last words she whispered were of me. Now, before he laid her body down, he took a ring from her finger and put it on his. It stayed there for the rest of his life. Catherine had to take care of her grieving mother and did so with grace and cheer. So much so that even Charles had to give her praise, and she maintained her calm even though the miscarriage she suffered the next week. Yeah. yeah Catherine is kind of the hero of this whole story. She, she puts up with a lot of shit. She's there for Charles. She's there for the rest of her family. And Charles is a dick to her, and he, he ends up being even even bigger dick later on. But she's really kind of the hero, the heroine of the story. Now, Charles, on the other hand, was not calm, and no work would be done for the month's installment. Rumors flew about him going mad or dying or being in prison for debt. His publishers posted a note telling about a death in the family. He had to ask for an advance on his payments to deal with medical and funeral expenses. He wrote an inscription for her tombstone, quote, Young, beautiful, and good, God in his mercy numbered her with his angels at the early age of 17, and he told Tom Beard that she was, quote, so perfect a creature never breathed. I knew her inmost heart and her real worth and values. She had not a fault. Her funeral was on May 13th. And you're going to love this. He declared that he was to be buried in the same grave. And no one seemed surprised. Go figure. Pretty sure, yeah, he was pretty in love with Mary. Much more than Catherine. So, kind of weird. Now, Charles only found solace in John Forster. He gave him attention, sympathy, and distraction. Someone Charles could talk to on equal terms, solid, clever, and strong-minded. The friendship was far from perfect. They did have the occasional fight, and Charles would sometimes mock John. But he was the only man for whom he could find his most private experiences and feelings, and he never ceased to trust him and rely on him. Charles sometimes took Forster for granted, and went through periods of coolness towards him, turning to other friends for a time. But when he was in real need of help, it was always Forster to whom he went. It was a soulmate-type relationship where both want to spend the majority of their time with each other. Hmm. Well, that summer, Catherine was again pregnant. 
they keep banging it out. Yeah, banging and popping. Macron had a plan to republish the sketches by Boz as a serial, hoping they would do as well as Pickwick. Charles thought this would hurt Pickwick's sales and was desperate to get the copyrights back. Macron paid 100 pounds for them, and he now asked for 2,000 pounds for the resale. Yeah. Chapman and Hall had a plan to buy them at that price and put out sketches themselves with illustrations by Cruikshank. Dickens agreed, but before the sketches began to appear in November, Macron fell ill and died. He was only 28. Charles, like he always did, forgot about his quarrel with his once good friend and started a scheme to raise money for his widow and children. Does that a lot over the years. Forster was upset with the whole fucking mess and took on negotiations with Bentley and his dealings with Charles. From then on, Forster would be involved in all Charles' dealings with publishers. Results matter. And Forster was able to get the copyrights back to Charles in three years and get his salary at the miscellany raised and to get more money for the long-planned novel, Barnaby Rudge, and was promised bonuses for books that sold well. The fact that Bentley was having to be negotiated with, fiercely, I might add, and Chapman Hall weren't, they even gave him another 2,000-pound bonus for all his work, were the reasons that they were called friends and Bentley became the robber. Forster even became... Chapman and Hall's chief literary advisor until 1861 because he was so good and loyal. Now, I can't stress enough how much Charles and Forster are fucking in love with each other. I really can't. Such a bromance. That's exactly what it is. I mean, it's it's like damn near marriage vows are being in the in the letters they write one another, it's 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 pretty much marriage vows they're telling to one another. They fucking love it like to the point where when Charles goes on trips and Forster can't go, he's depressed because he doesn't have him with him. Like he wants to take him rather than take his own wife to places. It so I just I just want to get that out there now. It's not just a, a you know a friendship. These two are you know connected at the fucking dick. But not in a gay way. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Heterosexual life mates. There you go. Jay and Silent Bob. Yes. Now, Forster introduced Charles to many other authors, playwrights, actors, artists, and lawyers, one of whom was Thomas Talford, a barrister that supported, among other things, universal male suffrage, the abolition of slavery, a bill giving divorced women custody of their young children, and the Copyright Act that protected authors' earnings during and after death. The two became close friends, so close, in fact, that when the Pickwick papers appeared in volume form, Charles dedicated it to him. Charles, still working with Bentley, even though they were starting to be at odds with one another, agreed to edit the memoirs of the famous clown Grimaldi for 300 pounds, just barely squeezing the work into a three-month gap between finishing Pickwick in October and starting Nicholas Nickleby for Chapman and Hall. He also agreed to write sketches of young gentlemen for Chapman and Hall for 125 pounds, which he started on January 8th, 1838, and published on February 10th. Just over a month. Holy shit. He wrote it and got it published. Yeah. At the same time, he was batting around ideas for Nickleby, and by February 21st, had the first chapter written, and it appeared in print a week later. 
For those of you that don't know Nicholas Nickleby, uh, the opening theme was the Yorkshire schools where unwanted boys, illegitimate, orphaned, or otherwise out of favor with their guardians, could be dumped and where they were kept with no holidays or breaks, ill-used and starved without medical care, so that the pine sickened and died in large numbers. Charles had heard of such schools and knew they were a whore needing to be dealt with, so he traveled to Yorkshire in February 1838 to see what he could find, pretending to be seeking a school for the son of a widowed friend. He was unable to visit any school, but talked to one headmaster with a bad record and was warned by an honest Yorkshire man not to send a child to the school he was asking about, quote, even a gutter in London would be better for a boy than such a school. Yeah. Now, from this, Charles would create Mr. Squeers, the headmaster of a school like these who advertised and comes to London to collect unwanted boys, colluding with those fuckers who are keen to be rid of them. Charles somehow shows the cruelty and vileness of the school and the terror of the boys, starved, beaten, made to work, and taught nothing, and at the same time, makes Squeers, his wife, and horrible wretch of a son and bitch of a daughter so funny that you can't help but laugh. It's like writing a comedy about a concentration camp shown through the eyes of the man that takes the establishment down. Now, it also shows the economic strife of the common people and the wage gap between the sexes and excels in its description of London life. After only eight installments in the paper, Nickleby began to appear dramatized in theaters all over England. Now, all through 1838, he was writing two of his best-known and best-revered stories of his life at the same time. It was some of the hardest and longest hours of work in his life, mostly because he again made promises most people couldn't keep and said, and said he would complete Oliver for publication in book form in September before the serial publication ended next March in 1839. So it's like, I'll have the whole book done and ready to be published before they get to put it out in serial form. Kind of a dick move. Yeah. Catherine gave birth to their second child, Mary, on March 6th, 1838. The baby would be cared for by a wet nurse because Catherine grew ill after the labor. Forrester came to the house on April 2nd for a celebration. It was here when Charles first spoke to him about his sense that he and Catherine were temperamentally unsuited for one another. They made one another uneasy, and he sensed trouble was ahead. Mm -hmm. Oliver Twist was published in three volumes on November 9th, and it sold well. It was even read and thoroughly enjoyed by a young Queen Victoria. Yes, hoity-toity. Oliver is the only Dickens novel without a dedication. One would think it would go to Forrester, but Forrester was just happy being Mary's, or Mamie's, as they called her, godfather. Aww. Yeah. Now, it wasn't all cheese plates and wine in the autumn of 38. All right. The problem, the wrench in the gears, as you would say, Charles's father, John, was again racking up debt and refusing to pay them off. Charles had to settle his debts again which he saw as shameful and a waste of his hard-earned money. He knew that he would probably always need to help out his father with regular handouts, but he thought of maybe moving him out of London to take away at least some of the temptation. On May of 1939, he would buy a cottage in Devon and move his parents and youngest brother out to it, by all accounts, against their will. 
It never says anywhere how they felt about the move, but at this point, I'm not really sure if Charles even cared. Yeah, I doubt he gave a shit. Like this is what this is what's gonna happen. Pretty, this this is what's happening. Yeah, I'm I'm done bailing you out of prison. I'm done. Bailing. But he's but he's not. <laughs> now, well, he's trying. Yeah. Now then, in January of nine of nine. 1839 came more tension with Bentley. Charles was finding it more and more difficult to satisfy two publishers at once. Chapman and Hall were the more generous than Bentley, and Charles was inclined to work more with them than him. Charles had decided he wanted to give up editorship of the miscellany and put off Barnaby Rudge. He was tired and needed a rest. Also, he was pissed off at Bentley for never wanting to renegotiate the terms for anything. He figured the best way to do this was by way of complaint letter. Now, here is some of this, not all of it, but here is some of that letter. Quote, The consciousness that my books are enriching everybody connected with them but myself, and that I, with such a popularity as I have acquired, am struggling in old toils and wasting my energies in the very height and freshness of my fame and the best part of my life to fill the pockets of others, while for those who are nearest and dearest to me can realize little more than I genteel subsidence, all this puts me out of heart and spirit. I do most solemnly declare that, morally, before God and man, I hold myself released from such hard bargains as these, after I have done so much for those who drove them. This net that has been wound about me so chafes me, so exasperates and irritates my mind, that to break it at whatever cost is my constant impulse. And for the time I have mentioned, six months from the conclusion of Oliver and the miscellany, I had washed my hands of any fresh accumulation of labor. So pretty much is, I'm sick and tired of people getting rich off of me. Fuck y'all. Yes. <laughs> In a very oh. flowery way. Fuck you all. <laughs> sure. Now, by March, Catherine was pregnant yet again. This will be a theme going forward, just so everyone knows. In July, he found out had his grand idea of moving his parents out of the city to help control his father's reckless money borrowing ended up not being such a grand idea after all. He received a letter from his mother. Now, there's no real mention of what the trouble was, but it did say that, quote, Alfred is instructed by his pappy that it's all up. Not sure what that means, but it can't be good because it's followed up by three exclamation points. Yeah, I had I can't even begin to think of anything that that could be remotely close to. Yeah. Now, finally, on September 20th, he wrote in his journal, work slash finished Nickleby this day at two o'clock. It was published in one volume in October. There was a great party thrown and Chapman and Hall gifted him with one of his most Famous portraits. Him sitting turned away from his desk, looking out a window. Very young. He's got the long hair. I will post a picture of the uh, painting on our Instagram and our Twitter. Once you see it, I'm sure you'll look at it and go, oh, yeah, I know that one. It's it's a very famous painting, and this is where he got it. So there you go. Now, Bentley wasn't gifting him any portraits. Bentley was getting frustrated with his former editor-in-chief, he was still expecting a complete, a completed Barnaby Rudge in January and was preparing to advertise it as a three-volume novel for 1840. And even though Charles told Crookshanks to expect chapters for illustrations in October, he set it aside so he can work on yet another idea for Chapman and Hall. A weekly magazine uh, he was proposing to edit to be called Master Humphrey's Clock. 
Plus, he was writing sketches of young couples, also for Chapman and Hall. His dealings with rival publishers getting worse. America wasn't making things any easier. There was no legislation of any kind covering the rights of foreign authors, and publishers simply took what they wanted and did what they liked with it. Example? Philadelphia firm of Carey, Lee, and Blanchard had put out sketches by Boz under several different titles in 1837 and incorporated part of Oliver Twist into one of the volumes without asking permission or offering any payment to Charles. In June of 1837, they made their first contact with Mr. Samuel Dickens, as they called him, and offered him a one-time payment of £25 for the parts of Pickwick they had been selling to the public since 1836 at a large profit for themselves. In 1838, they sent Bentley £60 and Charles £50 for advanced proofs of Oliver and tried to get proofs of Nickleby. Later, they offered Charles down payment of a little over £100 for advanced proofs of Master Humphrey's Clock and Barnaby Rudge. Now, for the moment, Charles accepted the situation because there wasn't much he could do about it at the time, but he was sure to challenge it once he arrived in America. Ooh. He's like, bitches, I'm coming. And he does, but not yet. Now, the evening of October 29th, 1839, a second daughter, Kate, or Katie, as she's called, was born. This, Charles had thought, would be the last saying it finished off his family of three nicely, even though it technically was a family of five, but I think he was just only counting the children. They say that the labor for each child gets easier as you go along. If that's true, I would have hated to see Charles and Mary's birth because Katie's took over 12 hours. No, each each of my children's births got worse and worse. I'd say that the normal consensus is, you know... The more kids you have, the easier it gets as you go down there. The first one's always the toughest, and it gets easier after that. That's what I always heard. All of my kids were difficult, 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 but they had health issues too. Uh, but I had always Except heard for one. Yeah, but I had always heard that it gets easier as it goes. Not I for Catherine. All, I had preeclampsia with all three of my pregnancies. Yeah. So. so it wasn't it wasn't good. Let's just say. And uh, worse off was that all the help for Catherine came from a doctor, a nurse, her mother, because Charles was suffering from another one of his many colds, declaring himself to be, quote, in such a sneezing, winking, weeping, watery state as to be quite unfit for public inspection. Like, I'm sick, I can't go out. (sighs) But he was well enough to go house hunting. Yeah. Yeah. All through this time, they had moved several times all over England. He was never one to stay in one place for too long, probably from his time as a child and teenager having to move because of his father's money problems. They moved into a bigger place in December when Catherine was back on her feet and Katie was settled in with a wet nurse. Now, on the 16th, Charles told Bentley, who was still under the impression that he was going to receive Barnaby Rudge and had been advertising it, that he could not deliver it and confessed that he had only written two chapters. Didn't go over too well. And that's where we'll pick it up for episode two. (laughs) Nice cliffhanger, babe. Thank you. Nice one. So what do you think so far? I'm starting not to like Dickens that much. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's got some real... 
he's a complicated guy. He's not one of these guys where you either love him or you hate him. He's he's kind of he jumps back and forth. Like you'll see later on that he does some stuff that you're like, oh, no, it's pretty good what he's doing. You know, he's helping people. He's helping people out. He, you know, he really goes out of his way to help certain people. And then the next thing you know, he turns around, and he does some just awful, disgusting thing, and you're like, you fucker. Yeah, like he's a complicated guy. He's doing all this great shit out in public to be recognized, but then in private with his boss and his wife, he's a complete and utter piece of shit. That's right. I mean, that's a that's a pretty close approximation to uh, yeah. I, I would say that's that's not. You're not completely wrong. Yeah. I just I'm so he's complete. He's a hypocrite. He's, he's racist against Jews, but yeah, he's... Well, he called somebody a Jew. Bentley could have been a Jew. I don't know. We'll have to look Not a very up. Jewish name. But, yeah, it's not... Neither is Sandler. <sighs> Sam? Oh, Adam. Adam Sandler. Yeah, okay. Uh, I don't I don't know. He's he's a complicated guy, and he's going to get more complicated as we go. There's going to you know, there's Again, there's going to be times where you're, you're thinking... Good for him. I'm glad he did that. There's other times where you're going to want to, you know, travel back in time and punch him in the fucking nuts. I already want to punch him <laughs> in the fucking nuts because of how he treats his wife. Yeah, I mean, that's not great. But, that, but I that, understand that was the time. Yeah, it's pretty and... par for the course for back then, though. Most men didn't stay in the in the room with their wives as they gave birth. But was, fucking her sister. I Again, it doesn't say that they were fucking. It just you says know that, goddamn it just well says he that was he was in love her. with her. He didn't. I mean, I don't know. It's. I don't know if they ever fucked her. He was just, in, he was in love with her. And it could have been a brotherly, sisterly thing. It could have been more than that. It, I don't know. We can only speculate. Well, I mean, like, look at uh, look at William uh, Godwin. He was completely head over heels in love with Mary Wollstonecraft. He didn't stick around when she gave birth. He took off, then he hung out with, uh, he worked, and then he went to a friend's house for dinner before he went home and, and saw that his you know wife was still in labor. That's just kind of how it was back then. Men didn't hang out in the delivery room and wait. I know. They were supposed to stay outside of the, the bedroom while the doctors and nurses and all that shit. It was woman's work. They didn't need to be a part of it. I don't know what to tell you. Unless the doctor was a man. Well, the, the man could be in there to birth because only, do, only men could be doctors then. And only women could be nurses. That's how it was. But pushing out the baby, that was the wife's job. Husband didn't need to be there. You could hand out cigars after you find out if it's a boy or a girl. All right, all right, yeah. Go ahead and give everybody our socials. All right, on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Open A F I N G Book, and I am at E C J B A T. And Young E T A M six on Twitter, Young E T A M on Instagram. You can email us Open A F I N G Book at gmail dot com. Tell us what you think about Charles Dickens. If uh, Dickskin. If it's going the way you thought it was going to go, if you if you know anything about him, if if you think he's a big a prick as my wife does, or if there's anybody else you want us to to cover in the upcoming you know months or years or however long we fucking do this thing, um, Stephanie, our Goodreads that we haven't updated, Goodreads.com slash open a fucking book. There you go. Huh? We still have plenty of Patreon stickers. Go there, sign up. Um, all the donations go to make this show even better than fucking what it is now. Yeah. Pa- yeah, pa- fuck you. <laughs> Patreon.com slash book. Go to my wife's Etsy page 
Etsy.com slash shop slash Stephanie Young Art. Oh my God, you did so great. I've, I'm saying it slowly. <laughs> yes, you did. And you didn't slosh your ashes. Like Dickens, my tongue is bigger than my mouth. And, and buy that's some a good thing sometimes. <laughs> buy some of my wife's soaps. She needs some because she's a dirty woman, apparently, saying things like that on our wholesome podcast. What the fuck ever? I'm going to need to put a thing at the beginning of the show telling you to keep the kids out of the room, listen to my wife talk about dirty things. Oh, bullshit. Things. Kids know more about that shit than I do. Probably. You can do what? <laughs> Sit down and teach me something. I'm, Pull up that internet. According to you, I'm a fucking prude. You are kind of. Uh, come back for our weekday Cliff Notes episodes, or as my wife likes to call them, the midweek Cliff Notes episodes. I'll get it right one of these days. Or, and you know what? The second she gets it right, I'm going to change the name just to fuck with her. You're an asshole. I know. Uh, where we uh, cover four books of the week, my wife usually brings up something, some book that she saw that she really, really wants to get and usually does. Uh I'm spoiled. Talk about book news. We just did a review of Ready Player Two on our last weekday cliff notes. That might be something that we start doing if there's a book that we both want to to read. We might both, you know, I'll listen to it. She'll sit down and read it, probably before I get done listening to it, and we'll review it on the, on that episode. Might start doing that. Unless I have to cook dinner, because apparently I have to put the needs of the house before me finishing a fucking book. Yes. It's bullshit. The needs of the house come before finishing a book. If you just listen to them, like I did, you can do more than one thing at a time. You know what? Because I like the smell of the book. I'm a bibliophile. Oh. Yeah, it's not weird at all. Email us. Let us know if you want to hear any more reviews from us. Um, rate and review us wherever you listen right now. Just just hit pause, rate and review us, and then hit play for the last you know minute and a half of the fucking show. Uh, all the all the apps that you got, go ahead and, and rate and review. Go to your local library, your local bookstore, buy a book from a local independent author from a local independent bookstore. Best thing you can do to help them out right now. And Stephanie, I think we're done. I think we're finished as well. Good. You almost said my line. Or you almost said your line before I said my line. I have this very structured ending. I'm going to fuck it all up. All right. I'll take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open the fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys. Ho, 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 ho.